What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. We're here with part two of our episode with Chris Fawson. He is an economics professor for Utah State University, the uh, John Huntsman School of Business, and he's also the executive director of Partners in Business. I think uh, for me, the definition of a mentor is somebody that sees me as I really am and helps me understand what that uniqueness the value of that uniqueness in a setting that they can help expose me to. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. You know, when we left off yesterday, I was mentioning how I think what you and your associate director, Eden Jones, are doing there is really interesting in the way that maybe not all academic institutions are giving kids that one-on-one experience with today's thought leaders and the chance to, to run these conferences and, and uh, maybe bridge that gap to the real world a little sooner. Um, to start with, can you, can you tell everybody what Partners in Business is? Yes. So Partners in Business is an organization within the Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University that is focused on bringing uh, thought leaders uh, primarily with experience in uh, organizational setting or business setting, but bring uh, thought leaders together with practicing professionals and students in a way that helps them uh, focus on lifelong learning as a pathway to success and understanding the value of networking within a conference setting and the value of uh, taking out time to be challenged in the, the views one has of how effective organizations are run and managed. Well, I, I'm a big fan of your philosophy. I mean, uh, when I was up there meeting with you guys here a couple of weeks ago, and you're talking about how the benefit also of looking at maybe not just studying what you're used to studying. I mean, where you guys have the, you have the 
Crossroads Conference for HR. You have the Operational Excellence Conference for more like the lean, the continuous improvement side, the accounting conference, the data analytics conference, the leadership conference. And this idea that we certainly believe in an ideation collective of you're not going to break up groupthink by just studying the same thing that you and your peers have always studied, right? right. Like right. you need to get exposure to other ideas to come up with other ideas for yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and this idea of networking within the context of learning, I, I feel like some of my best friends that I never would have met have been by finding those like-minded people at conferences, whether, you know, different, different people who have been on our show or it's either from going to the Adobe Behance conference, 99U or the Bloomberg new energy finance conference. And th these are people that they're kind of like thirst for learning and, and, you know, interest and mastery and progression uh, have have made them those standout individuals that I was really seeking to stay in contact with over the years and have ended up a guest on the show and helped me with other business things that I've been involved with. Um, but when you when you think about um, the advantage for someone to get exposed to these thought leaders from from a diverse set of subjects, maybe not just going to one of the conference, but going to all of them, where you've got, you know, people from Facebook and you've got Joseph Granny from Vital Smarts or Ryan Smith, founder of Qualtrics, coming to these different conferences. Um, but you've also got such a deep academic <laughs> Rolodex, obviously with your own professors and the, the research partners you guys are connected to. Yeah. Um, talk to me maybe a bit about um, kind of your marketing plan. I know that you're not in the business of trying to outspend Adobe for the most whiz-bang rock concert of a, of a conference. You're kind of going for a different approach. Right. I mean, of course, we would love to have the resources that Adobe has to put on their uh, great conferences, but uh, Partners in Business is actually a student-run organization within the Huntsman School. So while I am an executive director, I really look at my role more as coach and mentor of the students who are the conference curators. We call them uh, managing directors of the conferences that they manage, and they curate the content, and they curate the experience is an extraordinary opportunity for those students uh, in addition to holding them accountable for uh, generating uh, net positive revenues on the conferences that they're curating. But um, I think what we're trying to do in terms of the way we see our segmentation of the market is creating a unique experience that is hard to create in uh, client conferences or uh, broader conferences that are bringing working professionals together, and that is to create a dynamic where they're uh, interacting with students who are involved in a formal learning process and looking for ways to augment that formal learning by gaining a deeper appreciation for the practical and pragmatic elements of the practice of business. And I think we create something very unique uh, uh, our target is half of our attendees are paying professionals, half of our uh, attendees are students, and within that context, creating a rich network of interaction that allows uh, both paying professionals uh, and students to challenge their ideas, uh, to be reinvigorated in their knowledge and understanding and passion of the role of uh, business in society. And um, in doing that, of course, we bring together what we consider our world-class thought leaders. Uh, some of those are our own professors who are doing uh, cutting-edge research. 
as well as uh, many of the other thought leaders that you you mentioned uh, that have been very successful in building highly successful organizations. So it's about it's really about creating the context for gathering together, uh, sharing across the generations, sharing between uh, working professionals and uh, full-time students, and uh, finding energy out of that dynamic that is created. Well, you know, I started going to your conferences long before you and I became friends. And I, I will say it was an interesting dynamic when you kind of had these like curated lunch tables and we've got essentially an intern, you know, college kid at each one of them. And they bring like a different level of energy. Like I think mm-hmm. that like they kind of make everybody else like a little more excited to be there because this kind of like bright eyed, bushy tailed kid is like asking you these questions that he actually cares about the answer to, you know? Yeah. And you know, this young college students sitting there, she wants to know like why you're doing what you're doing. And then all of a sudden the other people sitting at your table actually want to know why you're doing it's like, it started different conversations than I was used to at other conferences. Um, It's kind of a fun dynamic. Yeah. I mean, another thing that I think is embedded in sort of our core uh, sense of purpose, I'm reminded of uh, a book I read a few years ago. The title of the book is Mastery by George Leonard very small book, but in his book, he talks about the importance of living life on the plateau as one pursues a life of mastery. And I think that uh, the challenge that we have in life is it's easy to sort of get in, uh, you know, sort of find our stride and we're just kind of floating along and we're uh, uh, modestly successful at what we do and we're satisfied with our life and that we're not challenged really to see ourselves in a different way, or we're not challenged to see our organization in a different way. And uh, I think that one of the things I love about partners in business is that as one lives life on the plateau, which is the inevitable part of the, the path of mastery, that one cannot just float along that, that you have to be actively engaged in uh, learning and growing and understanding and developing and oftentimes, if you're not doing that in ways that are uncomfortable to you, then you're not really uh, fulfilling the challenge of uh, progression that I think is an essential part of a life of fulfillment. And I think what Partners in Business is trying to do with the mix of conferences that we offer is to encourage people that, let's say, are accountants to not just come to the accounting conference, but if you're an accountant, you ought to come to the HR conference, and you ought to come to the OpEx conference, you ought to come to data analytics, and you ought to come to leadership, because what you will learn in those conferences will help you be more effective in understanding the broad context in which accountants are adding value to the organizations where they serve. And I think this is true for all of the functional areas of business. We've become too siloed, and as a result of that siloing, we're very comfortable in saying, I'm an accountant, I like to go to the partners in business accounting conference, but I'm not really into uh, IT or data analytics, so I won't go to that. But the problem is if you don't go to data analytics and you don't develop a language and understanding and familiarity with where innovation happens, which is on the fringes of where disciplines meet rather than in the center of the disciplinary silo. You know, the other advantage I'd probably add to that is um, if you think about the people who seem to become the most uh, professionally successful, uh, often their ability to work with humans 
is is really at the heart of that. Right. And being able to speak somebody else's language, at least in some part, you know some of the acronyms from their world. There's like this smile that comes across their face right off the bat of like, oh, you get me. And that kind of like cross-cultural competence that comes by being willing to invest some time in a in a broad variety of things so that you can speak somewhat intelligently on a number of subjects instead of just your own. Mm-hmm. Man, that makes you so much more fun to be around and inviting for people to want to connect with you. Um, this idea that we care about more than just ourselves is kind of magnetic, right? Um, yes. You know, I, I'm interested that you brought up mastery. Uh, it's a subject we like to talk to a lot, um, specifically in, in your world, in becoming a tenured professor and these kind of things. Can you talk about starting even, let, let's go back to getting your PhD. You know, there's a lot more people that start that process than finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel like are, for instance, some of the keys uh, or the differences between those who finish their PhD versus those who start it? Uh, well, I, I don't know that my experience is necessarily one that I would encourage anyone to follow. So, uh, <laughs> okay. uh, in, in this, in this sense, uh, I mean, I see people that at a very young age have an understanding of who they are and what they want to accomplish in life. And I don't think my own life experiences was characterized as that. Uh, when I started my PhD in economics, um, it was at a time when the U.S. was in a significant recession, and I was good at economics, and I had a extraordinary mentor who saw more in me than I saw in myself and encouraged me to apply to graduate school, and I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, get admitted to graduate school. And when I started my PhD, um, my original thought was, well, I'll put in a a year, maybe get a master's degree, and if the job market's good, I'll go out and get a job. And uh, I actively pursued that. I did very well in my first year of graduate studies. Uh, thought I'd just leave with a master's degree, but I came to a realization that, that for me, that staying and finishing my PhD, something that I seem to be good at, uh, would open more doors than it would close, and that I ought to just stick to uh, that trajectory while I had the opportunity before me. So I would say I wasn't uh, wildly purposeful. Uh, my life is, seems to be uh, characterized by a lot of good fortune and serendipity, oftentimes facilitated by extraordinary mentors, as I said, who saw more in me than I saw in myself at that point in time. Um, but getting a PhD is about, you know, dedication and hard work and uh, discipline, uh, like anything that uh, is worthwhile to pursue. I think a lot of times people think that um, the measure of an activity depends on how easy it is, but I would argue that it's probably not the case. And I think, again, coming back to mastery, the path of mastery is a difficult path. It's one that's fraught with uh, tensions and uh, frictions. Uh, that one must overcome in order to be successful. But I found that my own path of mastery, uh, if if one could call it that, and I maybe uh, it's presumptuous. To levels of mastery, right? Yeah, yeah. I think life is about mastery, and there are certainly times in my life when I haven't been on a path of mastery. But uh, it's about having the fortitude and and interest in moving forward and. Again, I think I I can't underestimate the extraordinary value that I've received from mentors 
who, in spite of my own lack of maturity or lack of understanding, uh, was incapable of seeing my own potential in ways that they did. And then subjecting myself really to their counsel and saying uh, that I would uh, seek for ways to honor their counsel by trying to fulfill a broader sense of purpose in my life. And uh, so for me, the path of mastery, I guess, you know, my life is full of ups and downs. And I'd like to think that on on occasion, I'm on a path of mastery in some regard. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm not a great athlete. I love my wife and my children, but I'm probably a mediocre husband and a a mediocre father at the end of the day. But it's about waking up in the morning and saying I can improve today and I can associate with people that uh, empower me to see myself in ways that are better than maybe where I'm at at any moment in time. Yeah, I love this concept that you're talking about with who are, you know, associating with certain individuals intentionally and and the mentorship principles. I'm thinking about somebody that I know really well who made millions of dollars very, you know, in their 20s and and accomplished certain things um by basically completely selling out to the advice from their mentor. Like they they chose someone who had the results they were looking for and then they kind of stopped questioning the advice mm-hmm. and doubled down on the advice and it's not like every single thing worked for them, but what they accomplished compared to uh, their peers of the same age was was pretty exponential. Um, and it was because they were learning from someone who had been there instead of random theories. It's kind of like when someone on the same plane says, I'm pretty sure that's how you get up there and they're trying to push you up. The advice isn't nearly so clear. Someone who's already up there who climbed that climbed that mountain and says, let me let me tell you some of the potholes. Yeah, <laughs> hey, yeah. Can I give you some recommendations on the route up here? Yeah. Uh, from an efficiency perspective, I mean, I know experience is, is supposed to be the best teacher. It's certainly the most painful teacher, but it's also quite slow. You know, if we can learn from other people's experience, man, there's an efficiency there. What advice do you have about mentor selection and and also how to get them to take you on? I I think, you know, for me, one of the things that's worked the best is just asking if I can buy somebody else lunch, you know, and tell them I'm not mm-hmm. looking for a job. I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for a handout. I just want your advice of what you would do if you were me. And yeah. it's kind of flattering to them. But what what advice do you have about reaching out to mentors and knowing which mentors to reach out to? I think first and foremost, you have to have a, a genuine interest in being mentored. And um, I think that there's an authenticity that is communicated uh, in how you reach out to people, the context in which you frame a desire to cultivate a relationship that is an important part of, you know, finding the kind of mentor that's going to be most helpful to you. There's also a sense of humility in, in one's desire to be mentored that I think is important. What I see a lot of times is that students or colleagues will identify somebody successful and say, I want to be like that, uh, but they're not really at a very basic level, they don't have an authentic commitment to making the sacrifices necessary to achieve that as a goal. Mm. And so they, they want to fight against what mentors would ask them to do. And I think that, you know, in looking for a mentor, you have to look for somebody that is going to have a commitment to you in the long run that will have enough confidence in you that 
they'd be willing to open up their network of connections. I think one of the most valuable things that mentors have done for me is not just in terms of providing counsel, but in terms of opening up their network of connections, opening up their Rolodex and saying, uh, you know, I have enough confidence in you that I'm willing to introduce you to somebody that I think can make a difference in your life and create opportunities for access to resources that will allow you to be successful in your pursuits. And it's more than just advice. It's about creating pathways to success by leveraging uh, a mentor's networks. And, and that only happens in relationships of trust. And uh, I think it's hard to build trust in relationships, but, you know, it starts with honest, sincere, authentic interest in people as human beings and a desire to understand uh, what pathways to success look like and realize that it requires a lot of hard work and effort and it isn't. No, no pathway to success is easy. Yeah, as I'm hearing you say that, I'm thinking about what I've seen work in the past and I agree, I think a lot of successful people have individuals coming up to them who want the same result, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but not nearly so, so high a percentage of those individuals are interested in the pain right? yep. <laughs> to get right. there, you know, and, right. and successful people are really used to, um, you know, family members or others in their life who are really interested in spending their money <laughs> or, right. or things like this, but right. maybe not so interested in learning the hard one lessons that they had to learn to get where they're at. When really that's what I find so many high achievers are the most proud of is is breaking through the glass ceilings and the discoveries, right? And mm-hmm. and it's almost like a bit lonely for them because people don't really care about that. They just want the money. And mm-hmm. I've seen people really set themselves apart and get uh, a lot more attention from high achievers when they'll do things like that signal early on, I'm different than all those other people. Like mm-hmm. they'll they'll ask them things like, hey, what what books would you recommend I read? And then they actually go read them and then they come back and report back yeah. like as soon as they can, which completely sets them apart from everyone else they've told to read that book. Cause like 99% of people said, Oh, that's a great idea. And then never did it. Yeah. And like kind of that hustle of like seeing if you can scratch your mentors back first, even though they're in a, you know, maybe they're have financially more than you do or, or leadership or power politically or whatever. Um, those people who show up and serve are easily <laughs> like they're easily loved. And yeah. I, I've seen that as a real route to, to that trust relationship you've talked about is when somebody who seemingly doesn't have as much to offer just shows up and serves wholeheartedly, they make it into that inner circle and uh, man, that the efficiency, once they've made it in, it's kind of a rocket boost up what they get. Yeah. Have you seen that or do you feel differently or? No, I agree totally. I'm reminded uh, last spring at our leadership conference, we had Ryan Smith from Qualtrics come and talk. And Ryan's been wildly successful by any measure in his uh, business. Yeah, how big is Qualtrics? I don't know how big it is uh, numerically in terms of revenues. But uh, but anyway, wildly successful. Uh, probably... Uh, look it up online quickly and see. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing that. You tell a story, I'll get okay. some stats. Anyway, uh, Ryan's young, has young kids. And of course, one of the challenges uh, that I see that presses upon people like Ryan is how do I 
take the enormous value that I've created through my business activities and not destroy my children? How do you tell, you know, how much you've given them is too much? Or how do you uh, create opportunities without destroying individual initiative? And talked about how, you know, he and his wife have this commitment to get up every day and go to work. Uh, not because they have to, not because financially they're in need of doing that, but that it's an example that they set for their kids. He called it uh, grinding, right? That they get <laughs> up and they go through the grind. Mm-hmm. I think there's just a very powerful message in that is that success is uh, conditional upon getting up and grinding through the day's activities. And in so doing, coming to understand yourself and what your endowment of skills and talents and abilities are and understanding. Uh, who within an organization or who within your network is most complementary as a resource to leverage your endowments. Um, but it's about getting up and doing work. And uh, I just think that's a very powerful message. I find that a lot of times people want to be mentored, but they're not willing to do the work. They don't understand what it means to really do the hard work of being an effective mentee. And uh, and I think that really speaks to what you were talking about is that ability to build trust, uh, to signal authenticity, uh, to have the courage to follow through. Um, so many people, you know, think that life is about uh, superficial and pretension, pretension rather than actually doing real work. And uh, I you know think what? that success is predicated on hard work first and foremost. It's interesting because, you know, I used to work I did hard work when I was doing construction as a teenager on the oil and gas pipeline after high school. And it wasn't necessarily hard work at the right thing. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's dudes yeah. there that work 10, 12 hour days and, and they haven't really gotten that far ahead in life. Um, but hard work applied to the right thing. It's funny how to grind or to grind it out. It sounds so negative, right. And unappealing, yeah. Yeah. but it's funny how you kind of gain a love for the sport, you know, mm-hmm. like um, it's like, when you start a workout campaign, it's a workout program. It's so painful for the first, for the first weeks. Right. Yeah. But then like, if you stick with it, it actually becomes kind of a joy. Right. Yes. And I, I do feel like that. I, I think about those people who I've been lucky enough to learn from that have really made it far in life. And there kind of is like, um, well, I think about a kind of a funny way, uh, you know, all these special forces guys that, you know, whether it's Navy SEALs or Green Berets or Delta Force guys that we work with at Child Rescue, mm-hmm. they, they talk about, they call it embrace the suck. Yeah. And and there's like almost this perverse joy in, in overcoming the pain. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, I'm, I think about that George Klassen book uh, from 50 years ago or whatever called The Richest Man in Babylon. Yes. And there's the story of that slave who decided he was going to work hard. He wasn't going to do the minimum that his masters wanted. Mm-hmm. And the other guy saying, why we're slaves. That's ridiculous. You know, I'm going to do just enough to not get whipped basically. Yeah. And then you see all the like unintentional consequences that this giving us all turned into, including buying his own freedom and all this stuff. Right. Right. And um, it's funny. It's kind of like the difference between short-term thinking and long-term thinking. As you, as you were saying all that, I just thought, it, it's so true The like, you know, once you know what the right thing to apply that hard work to is, which is a big if, right? Right. But if you can either have a mentor or learn the pattern of what to apply it to, those individuals who are willing to hustle that unexpected amount, it's like maybe they, they hustle 20% more than 
second place than everybody else. Mm-hmm. But they get like 2000% more return for only hustling and, you know, for getting up, <laughs> for getting up at that bit earlier for like, they don't have to do that much better than everyone else. Um, but they get exponentially better results for, for that extra bit of grind, you know, yeah. like Qualtrics here, right? They got a thousand employees. They've got offices, not just here in Utah, but Dublin, Ireland and Sydney, Australia, Washington, DC, Seattle, Dallas, all over thousand plus employees got 70 million from Sequoia capital. And then later 150 million, you know, these are the guys that back Google and Facebook, yeah. Sequoia capital. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, as you talk about those principles, Anyways, it, it really resonates this idea of, um, I don't know, nobody feels like it. Nobody feels like working harder than everybody else. Nobody feels like, um, and, and working harder isn't always a muscle thing, right? Sometimes right. it's working harder is being willing to sit and be still and think harder. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which for like activity junkies is not... It's not as comfortable. We feel like we should be doing something, right? But yeah, that book's called Think and Grow Rich, not Work Hard and Grow Rich, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and everybody has a different endowment of skills and talents and abilities, right? So mm-hmm. some people it is physical exertion that makes the difference. And for others, it's their creative capacity or it's their capacity for human interaction at deep and meaningful levels that makes the difference. But I think if one, if one doesn't discover uh, what one's unique endow- endowment is. It's hard to apply that work effort mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah. You know, sometimes people rip on these books, like whether it's a personality plus about, you know, what's your personality aptitude or whether it's mm-hmm. um, strength finders of kind of like the, Hey, Michael Jordan didn't make a, mon- a lot of money playing baseball. So why don't you figure out what your basketball is? So you can double down on it. Yeah. And, and certainly like, any one of those type of books or programs as a cure-all, I, I wouldn't agree with, right? Right. But um, it is interesting what choices we can make when we become more self-aware and how sometimes those tools can help us maybe more feel more solid about recognizing our aptitudes and what we should be doubling down on versus what we should be finding a co-partner or a staff member to do, right? Yeah. What I find, uh, I mean, most people have taken things like Myers-Briggs assessments or various kinds of instruments like that to discover kind of core elements of their personality or their uh, capacity for human interaction. But I think what I have found is that, well, I find those things amusing, and I've done many of those throughout my life. What I find is, is that great mentors in deep and honest conversations reveal more to me mm. about what my core potential is than uh, all of those instruments. So I'm not saying mm. they're not of value, but no, no, I can see that. I think uh, for me, the definition of a mentor is somebody that sees me as I really am and helps me understand what that uniqueness, the value of that uniqueness in a setting that they can help expose me to. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes, um, you know, I like personally, I have succeeded at a couple of things. And so every once in a while, we'll get, I'll get people reaching out wanting to talk. And um, I think that like recognizing what a value mentors have been in my life has helped me to slow down maybe when it wasn't convenient to try to like pass that generosity on. 
mm-hmm. and it it always seems like a little bit of a burden because it wasn't didn't come at a convenient time right and then i always finish feeling like that was the best thing i could have done with my time and like it's like such a natural endorphin release to like be of benefit to someone else mm-hmm. um i know we've been talking about our own progress but we really can make the world better by subverting our own agenda sometimes and and passing that generosity on to I agree. Yeah. Well, listen, this is great. Um, any last advice you'd have for entrepreneurs or innovators out there? Discover your passion and, uh, and have the courage and confidence to pursue it and uh, be a continuous learner. Those would be my, my uh, it seems to me, based on my life experience, that that's really the foundation of success is always be in a learning mode. That's great. Well, thanks uh, thanks for making time for us today. Hey, thanks, Jess. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Great. Bye. Bye. That was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.